Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Okay, so I think this kind of summarizes the entire book, this next statement that Chesterton makes. The religion of the world in its right proportions is not divided into fine shades of mysticism or more or less rational forms of mythology. It is divided by the line between the men who are bringing that message and the men who have not yet heard it or cannot yet believe it. That is so powerful, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like... And, and <laughs> this is not opinion. No. History is divided around the person of Christ. Yeah. And you can say that that's a Western division. It's not. No. It's the entire world revolves around that final point. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus was the point at which history divides. Right. The reason we have BC and AD. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. And why they're trying to get rid of it. Yep. And I, I like what he says in this paragraph because he talks about the Christian faith. And here we pick up not on Christ, but on the followers of Christ. Yeah. And he says, they came at the world with the idea that they had something new to deliver. Yeah. Right? They had real news, something that was novel, not just the old view that we had of God mm -hmm. and mythology and, that, and the possibilities of who this veil might be hiding. Right, right. They had the news that this God came to earth. God with us. Yes, God with us. Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with mm -hmm. us, right. And this was news. Right. And he says, a messenger, and this is what the apostles were, does not dream about what his message might be or argue about what it probably would be. Right. He delivers it as it is. Right. It is not a theory, as our rational age would accept. Or a fancy, and this is me commenting, mm -hmm. as a mythology or an imaginary account. Right. And Chesterton says but a fact. And a fact is a contingency. Right. Could be one way, could be another. It either is what it is, or it's not. Right. A fact is a reality. And then he says, it is not relevant to this intentionally rudimentary outline to prove in detail that it is a fact. Because all we're talking about here is history. He's not trying to provide an apologetic right. for the Christian faith. Right. He's saying, look at history. They treated it as a fact. But merely to point out that these messengers, the apostles and the Christians who followed it, that these messengers do deal with it as men deal with their fact. Mm -hmm. And everything that follows from this is but the natural human attributes of human beings who believe they have a message relating to a fact. Yeah. I desire to avoid in this last summary all the controversial complexities that may once more cloud the simple lines of that strange story, which I have already called in words much too weak, the strangest story in the world. But the great line is that Jesus was God come to earth, redeeming mankind. Right. And that message goes forth as news. And news in the sense of nobody ever would have thought of this. This is truly 
novel, new, news, because it is a fact. God came to earth to redeem mankind, and that surprising fact is what drove those who understood it, who knew it, to proclaim it. Right, right. And whether or not it's true, we're not concerned with at this point, because what we're doing is outlining history. Mm-hmm. They In believed it was true, right. that it was a fact. So what do you do with that? Right. Okay, so how about what he says here? So when we say that the country contains so many Confucians or Buddhists... I love this section. Okay, we mean that it contains so many pagans whose prophets have given them another and rather vaguer version of the invisible power, making it not only invisible, but almost impersonal. Yes. What do you think of that? I think this is... Chesterton making the point as clear as it can possibly make yeah. that human beings have this notion, generally speaking, mm-hmm. that there is something bigger and larger beyond us, that this is the foundation of rational human structures. Yeah. And he says that, look, when you say that a nation contains a group of Muslims, what you're saying is that they believe in something that is transcendent and beyond us, that is a universal power. Right. And he says, to that extent, they have it right. Mm -hmm. They are those who have accepted the reality of a greater reality beyond ourselves, but they've rejected the news, the fact Um. that that God came to this earth right. in the person of Jesus Christ. So they are accepting one level of the reality yeah. and rejecting the most important news right. that proclaims that God's arrival on the earth and his redemption of humankind. They're holding on, as Plato says, to the type of vision that people before Christ might very well have held mm-hmm. on to. Right. Like those who would hold on to the laws of Lycurgus in Sparta. That is, they're believing one particular cultural vision, but rejecting something else. Right, right. And that's an important point. And then again, as you said, with the Confucians, they too are a member of the pagan class who are holding on to a view of God that is at some level grasping after that veil that hides the reality. They're missing the news, the reality, the truth that has been proclaimed. So they are just an earlier version of humanity that is seeking after truth, but is missing the most vibrant news that has been pushed forth. They're rejecting it. Why? Because they're basing it on their own cultural views rather than looking at the universality of the reality of Jesus coming to earth and redeeming all of mankind. And he says, nobody else except those messengers has any gospel. Nobody else has any good news for the simple reason that nobody else has any news. Right. Jesus is the news. Everything else 
is the old reality that all of humanity has been dealing with from the time it was created, from the time of Adam, when he came forth and understood that there's something more, something real beyond this basic human reality that we see around us. Okay. Chesterton says here, tell me what you think of this. I think it a piece of plain justice to all the unbelievers to insist upon the audacity of the act of faith that is demanded of them. I willingly and warmly agree that it is in itself a suggestion at which we might expect even the brain of the believer to reel when he realized his own belief. But the brain of the believer does not reel. It is the brains of the unbelievers that reel. We can see their brains reeling on every side and into every extravagance of ethics and psychology, into pessimism and the denial of life, into pragmatism and the denial of logic, seeking their omens and nightmares and their canons and contradictions, shrieking for fear at the far-off sight of things beyond good and evil, or whispering of strange stars where two and two make five. I was going to say that kind of reminds me of all the chords that the white witch uses to bind Aslan and confuse Christians who compromise with the world. Oh my. Yeah, that's a good analogy to talk about this. Yeah. So when I read that section, he talks about the idea that there is an act of faith. And this is the point I've been trying to make in the Christian Atheist to those who were my friends in the atheist community, Mm -hmm. that there is an act of faith. There is something underlying what it is they are believing. And they're refusing to face the fact that they have a choice in the matter. And that he says, look, I willingly and warmly agree that it is in itself a suggestion at which we might expect even the brain of the believer to reel when he realized his own belief. Yeah. That is, it really is something to believe that this God of the universe that created the world came down and became a human being. That is an amazing yeah. story. It's not easy. It's not easy mm-hmm. to believe. Right. And yet we find in practice, that is, in the fruits of the Spirit, Mm -hmm. in the fruits of what it is we do as human beings, that it is not the mind of the believer that reels. Yeah. I think this is one of the brilliant points of Chesterton here in this last section, that there is a sanity revealed as the fruit of belief in Christ that is denied in those who do not believe. And he traces that out here. Yeah. He talks about what happens. The brain of the believer does not reel. It is the brains of the unbelievers yeah. that reel. And you tell me whether or not our world is reeling right, right now. We can see their brains reeling on every side mm-hmm. into every extravagance of ethics. Think of the cult. I get in trouble every time I talk about this with you. But the the cult (laughs) of niceness that we see around us, that we have to be nice at the expense of truth, of the ethic of tolerance, diversity, 
inclusion and equity, that these things trump reality. Right, right. And then he says, into pessimism. Think of the resentment, the victimhood, the oppression, the suicide that characterizes our world. All of this is denied in Christianity that says we find our life, we find our happiness, we find our joy in Christ. Right. And then he says, and the denial of life. And we've talked before, and I don't know if we've talked on No Compromise or not about this, but we've talked at length about Canada and the United States culture of death. Right. We have talked about that. Right. So Canada is now like instituting this idea that we want to tell people who are despairing to just take their own lives and be done. And it's a good thing. And it's a good thing. Yes. Good death. Celebrate it like your birthday. Yeah. There's something here. I, I mean, I just read for the Christian atheist this week, a sermon by... Spurgeon? No. Oh, George MacDonald. I see. By George MacDonald. And MacDonald has this constant theme when you read him of this notion of a good death. And there's something to be said about that. But I think he's really, (laughs) I think he's really unbalanced on this. It bothers me deeply different times when I'm reading his works, this notion of a good death that he almost seems to be buying into a lot of the culture of death that we're seeing around us today. It is very troubling to me. That's one of the elements that constantly bothers me about him. Like in the novel Lilith, he talks constantly about this death and good death and the the, the goodness of the cold and all of those things. And And, and we know that death is the last enemy. Yes. And it is overcome by Christ. Right. Life is good. And there's just, there's something unbalanced there that bothers me deeply. And I I guess I'll leave it there. I'm not trying to do a critique or a, a clear, you know, analysis of the problem, but there's something there that bothers me deeply about George MacDonald and his work. Okay. Into pessimism, he says. And think of the resentment, the victimhood, the oppression, the suicide, and the denial of life, which we talked about, into pragmatism, he says, the materialist subjectivism, and the denial of logic. There we see Hegel's dialectic, seeking their omens in nightmares and their canons in contradictions, Chesterton says. And that's just Hegelian logic. Yeah. Playing out. Yeah. He says, shrieking for fear at the far off sights of things beyond good and evil, and that's a an allusion to Nietzsche, or whispering of strange stars where two and two make five. Mm-hmm. Where do we hear that? <laughs> or where there are an infinite field of gender identities. Yeah. Right? Meanwhile, this solitary thing that seems at first so outrageous in outline that the God of the universe, the creator, should come down and be a part of his creation, remains solid and sane in substance. And this next line clinches everything everything in this conclusion. Right. It 
that is Christianity. It remains the moderator of all these manias. Right. It balances all of the things, all of these tendencies in humanity that spur us off into all of these radical positions. Christianity moderates them, rescuing reason from the pragmatists. Yeah. I repeat, he says, that I have deliberately emphasized its intrinsically defiant and dogmatic character. The mystery is how anything so startling, that is the Christian message, should have remained defiant and dogmatic and yet become perfectly normal and natural. Okay, so let's finish up with Chesterton's concluding paragraph from his conclusion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, this is really good, and I'm going to read the whole paragraph. If you need to stop me, just stop me. Okay. But this madness has remained sane. The madness has remained sane when everything else went mad. The madhouse has been made a house to which age after age men are continually coming back as to a home. That is the riddle that remains, that anything so abrupt and abnormal should still be found a habitable and hospitable thing. I care not if the skeptic says it is a tall story. I cannot see how so toppling a tower could stand so long without foundation. Still less can I see how it could become as it has become the home of man. Yes. Had it merely appeared and disappeared, it might possibly have been remembered or explained as the last leap of the range of illusion, the ultimate myth of the ultimate mood, in which the mind struck the sky and broke, but the mind did not break. It is the one mind that remains unbroken in the breakup of the world. If it were an error, it seems as if the error could hardly have lasted a day. If it were a mere ecstasy, It would seem that such an ecstasy could not endure for an hour. It has endured for nearly 2,000 years, and the world within it has been more lucid, more level-headed, more reasonable in its hopes, more healthy in its instincts, more humorous and cheerful in the face of fate and death than all the world outside. For it was the soul of Christendom that came forth from the incredible Christ, and the soul of it was common sense. Though we dared not look on his face, we could look on his fruits, and by his fruits we should know him. The fruits are solid, and fruitfulness is much more than a metaphor, and nowhere in this sad world are boys happier in apple trees, or men in more equal chorus singing as they tread the vine, than under the fixed flash of this instant and intolerant enlightenment, the lightning made eternal as the light. I mean, I think this last paragraph is absolutely astounding. Yeah. This madness has remained sane. Right. We see what Christianity constitutes. And yes, at one level, when we look at it, we cannot help but say, really? (laughs) The creator of the world. Which, you know, when when we're being when we're being rational yeah. may or may not exist, <laughs> has become a human being and redeemed the nature of humanity. <sighs> That's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And yet that madness 
has actually sanified, if I can coin a term there, <laughs> the world. Yeah. It is the Western world that has led us to nearly eliminating the poverty of all of humanity. Yeah. That has helped us to recognize so much that has enabled us to fulfill the mission that God gave us in Genesis to subdue the world and be fruitful and multiply and fill it. And our understanding, the science that the Western world has developed, is what made the world sane. Yeah. And what is making it insane? <laughs> the abandoning of that Christian structure that enabled us to transcend all of the basic paganistic view of the world yeah. that has gotten rid of so many of the evils, not the least of which is slavery. Yeah, That sanity, which seemed madness at one level, seems like it wouldn't last. And yet, as he says here, it has endured for nearly 2,000 yeah, years. Yeah. And it keeps coming back over and over again. And the world that we live in, that is the result, the fruit of it, that mm -hmm. Jesus said, mm -hmm. by their fruits you will know them. By their fruits we know the world of Christ and the world that it has produced has been more lucid, more level-headed. In other words, less superstitious. Yeah. Christianity is not the fan of superstition more level-headed, more reasonable in its hopes, more healthy in its instincts, more humorous and cheerful in the face of fate and death mm -hmm. than all the world outside right. Christendom. Right. For it was the soul of Christendom that came forth from the incredible Christ, and the soul of it was common sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is absolutely astounding. Yeah. And right on. And I, I guess the last thing I would like to highlight there. Yeah, because I don't have anything else um, to say. I like that he said, everyone is happier in this world mm -hmm. as they tread the vine, that is, when they do their work, than under the fixed flash of this instant and intolerant enlightenment. That is, there are boundaries that God has put in place. Mm -hmm. And Christianity only lives, is only vibrant, because Christ himself set forth those boundaries. Right, exactly. And when we violate them, we're outside the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. Right. And if we want to walk in the way, the truth, and the life, we must walk in Jesus. Right. and those intolerant boundaries. All right. So if you have nothing else to say, John, I guess we should close this out, huh? It's gotten pretty long. Yep. <laughs> this has been Yeah, you amazing, had a lot to I say. Think. And I think it would be good if those who read and try to understand yeah. Chesterton's Everlasting Man, yeah, if they would start with Yeah, start conclusion. with the conclusion, yeah. yeah. And you have it broken down like that on Simple Gifts on YouTube. If you go into the Everlasting Man playlist, you could go directly to the conclusion and right. just hear the conclusion and that's it. That would Click be a great thing. Yeah, yeah. Start with the conclusion yeah. and then fill out the details right. by reading the rest of the book. Right, right. 
Okay, so that's it for this week, huh? Okay. <laughs> Boy, were you really excited? I really <laughs> I know this conclusion. I know you did. Mm -hmm. um, I know you really wanted to do this. Yeah. All right. So don't forget to check out John's latest book, Paradise Lost, The Machinery of Evil. It would make a great Bible study book for one of your Bible studies in your church. Also, his previous book, Through the Looking Glass, The Imploding of an Atheist Professor's Worldview. And if you are listening on YouTube, please take a moment to subscribe. We would appreciate it so much. What are you doing next week, John? I'm actually thinking of doing a Christian atheist on this conclusion. Oh, okay. All right. So at some point. We'll see. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, and we appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen. And we ask that if you want to support us, please click on the link in the description to buy us a cup of coffee. And we look forward to talking to you next week. And thank you again for joining us. Thank you, my love. This was a fantastic, really enjoyed talking with you about this. Today. Yes, you did a very good job. I love you. I love you too. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.